0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's take our Bibles and open to the scripture reading this afternoon. Exodus chapter 16. The book of Exodus, of course, recounts the deliverance of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. And as we come to chapter 16, the people of Israel have been out of Egypt for some time. They are in the wilderness. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt! There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions." You will know that it was the Lord when He gives you meat to eat in the evening, and all the bread you want in the morning, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. And place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one tenth of an ephah. This afternoon our text is Mark six, thirty to forty four. Continuing with our series of sermons on the Gospel according to Mark. So we begin reading at Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to Him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. "'Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages "'and buy themselves something to eat.' "'But he answered, "'You give them something to eat.' "'They said to him, "'That would take eight months of a man's wages. "'Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat?' "'How many loaves do you have?' he asked. "'Go and see.' "'When they found out, they said, five and two fish.' Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then He gave them to His disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Beloved congregation of Christ, our Lord and Savior. A man and his wife decided to take a vacation somewhere exotic. And being the independent sort, they didn't want the guided tour. They didn't want to be on a bus with a bunch of people you don't know, a bunch of strangers, So they decided that when they landed, wherever it was they were going, they would go to the rental car counter at the airport and they would rent a car and then they would go from there and they would take care of their own sightseeing. And that's exactly what they did, or at least what they started to do. And the wife said, don't you think you should get a map? Don't you think you should bring a map, honey, just in case? And the husband, being a man, replied, it's okay, honey. The rental car has GPS. We'll have no trouble getting around. And so their flight arrived in this city, this city where few people speak English. The people at the rental car counter spoke some English, and that was helpful. The couple went and got their car, and as advertised, it came with a GPS unit. And getting into the car, they they powered it up, and they entered the address of their hotel, which was on the other side of the city at the end of a maze of roads. And they set off. And after about 30 minutes on the road, the GPS went blank. And they pulled over to the side of the road, and the man, being a man, tried to fix it. He checked the power. He tried to turn it on, tried to turn it off. even banged it a few times. But nothing helped. Nothing would work. The GPS was dead. There they were in the middle of a strange city where few people speak English. No maps, no GPS, no cell phones, no BCAA. For some, this could be the greatest and most exciting challenge ever. But for most people, this would be a nightmare. Totally disoriented, totally lost. Not knowing which way to go. That can happen when you go on a vacation, but it can happen in the middle of daily life too, can it? Something can come along, maybe the death of someone you love, maybe sickness, maybe an accident. Something can come and knock you off your feet and totally disorient you, making you wander in the wilderness of doubts and questions. And that disorientation can happen temporarily, just for a short time, or it can be a more long-term thing. And if we reflect on it long enough with an open Bible, we begin to realize that we are pilgrims in a strange land. And so, much of what we see happening around us in this life can be disorienting and can be confusing. makes no sense. Like sheep without a shepherd. Except, as believers, we know that we do have a shepherd, a good shepherd. In Jesus Christ. And we know that because it's revealed to us in the Bible. And that truth gives us comfort. It encourages us for our pilgrimage. And we see it particularly in our passage for this afternoon. And so I preach to you God's Word, the Lord Jesus revealed as the true shepherd of Israel. We'll consider His concern for His disciples, His compassion for the crowds, and finally His contribution to the feast. Earlier in chapter 6, the Lord Jesus had sent out his disciples on a mission, a preaching and healing mission. He commissioned them to be his prophets. And in the verses right before our text, we find out what often happens to God's prophets. Following in the footsteps of other prophets in the Old Testament, John the Baptist was beheaded by a waffling king and his evil wife. Now, when we come to verse 30, we pick up the story of the disciples and their mission. The mission is over, and they return to their chief prophet, the Lord Jesus. They report all they'd done and taught. And evidently, it had been a busy time for them. And the busyness just continued all around them. Mark tells us that many people were coming and going. And in fact, it was so busy that they weren't even able to find a moment in which they could sit down In which they could have a bite to eat. Notice that the crowds are considered a bother here. They're annoying. They prevent people from taking care of their normal daily needs. And the Lord Jesus sees this. He's concerned for His disciples. The special group of 12 men who are part of his inner circle. Why would he be concerned? Because he's a man. And he has a human nature. He knows what it's like to be tired. Remember him earlier in Mark, sleeping in the boat? He fell asleep. He was dead tired. He knows what it's like to need a break. How often don't you read in the Gospels about the Lord Jesus trying to go to a quiet place somewhere to take a break, to pray, and so forth? Loved ones, brothers and sisters, some of you are tired. Some of you are worn out. Maybe even this afternoon, maybe you're having a hard time keeping your eyes open. Listen to the words of your Savior at the end of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beautiful words, aren't they? The Lord Jesus still extends his call to come. Come to him with your weariness and your burdens. Come to your elder brother who knows and understands. You can pray to him. You can pray to the Lord Jesus and bring these things to him and you can know that he'll not only listen, but he'll also extend his help. He'll do that by encouraging you with his word through the Bible. He'll give his help through the Holy Spirit, the Comforter whom he's sent to dwell in us. He'll give His help through the encouragement of Christian brothers and sisters. Loved ones, when you pray to Him, He will not fail to answer. Because the concern He shows for His disciples in this passage, it's the same concern that He still has today for His people. Remember what it says in Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, today. And forever. He will hear and act. And so he does here in Mark 6 as well. He knows their need and he acts on it. He wants to take them on a retreat. He tells them to come with him to a quiet place so that they can rest up a bit. And it's important to note that when he says, A quiet place. Literally that says, A wilderness place. The word here was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the place where the people of Israel traveled through on their way to the Promised Land. The place where they they wandered before they entered the Promised Land. The wilderness. More on that in a minute. Obviously, they're at the Sea of Galilee, that lake in northern Israel. Israel. And that's obvious because they get into a boat to travel to this solitary place. And again, that's the same word as in verse 31. It can also be translated, a wilderness place. From Luke's parallel account, we know that this was somewhere along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, near a place called Bethsaida. Assuming that they were near Capernaum when they got in the boat, it was a a straight line distance across the lake of about six and a half kilometers. The Sea of Galilee is not a huge lake. And as a boat was sailing across, it would be very easy to keep your eye on it from the shore. And that's exactly what the crowds did. As the boat departed, they watched very carefully. And they started running to the place where they thought the boat might land. Mark tells us that these people came from all the towns and they ran on foot. And I just mentioned that the straight line distance is about six and a half kilometers. But if you were on foot running around the shore of the lake, that distance extends to about 16 kilometers, quite a bit further. But people in those days were much more accustomed to traveling on foot even to running on foot, and somehow they managed to outrun the boat, and they managed to get to that landing point before Jesus and his disciples. Now comes what I think is the biggest surprise in this text. And you may say, well, hold on, Pastor, there's a miracle here. That's a, that's a surprise. Yes, that is a surprise. There's a miracle. But by this time in Mark, we've, we've come to expect miracles from Jesus. We know that He does miracles. Now, there's a bigger surprise here. Something just amazing. Jesus and His disciples were trying to escape the crowds, trying to head out on a retreat so that the disciples could rest, that they could eat. But now they arrive at their destination, and who's waiting there for them? But the crowds. Thousands of people. People. Now I think any one of us on a good day would probably be annoyed at this. Here we go out of our way to escape the crowds and they chase after us. Running around the lake as if their life depended on it. We wanted a break. But these people won't give it. They won't give up. And that's why verse 34 is so surprising. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd... He had compassion on them. What? We expect to read, Jesus became exasperated with them, or maybe Jesus was frustrated with them, or maybe annoyed with them. But Jesus had compassion on them? Who is this? And that's exactly the question that Mark wants us to ask. Who is this? That's the question he's going to answer. Jesus is the one who has compassion on the crowds. Compassion that means he has pity, he has sympathy, he is moved in his heart for them. This morning we celebrated the Lord's Supper and then afterwards we we heard the doxology. And in there were, were the words of Psalm 103. That psalm expresses the same kind of compassion and sympathy that we find here, attributing it to God Himself. Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Those are beautiful words, and they're echoed here in our text. When the Lord Jesus is said to have compassion on these crowds that chase Him around the lake, who is Jesus? Well, He's the one who reflects the compassion of the Father. Because as Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. And in Him, all the fullness of God dwells. Jesus is the one who has compassion on the crowds because, Mark tells us, they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's not the first time you find that expression in the Bible. That expression has a a long history in the Old Testament. Sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were without a leader, they were said to be like sheep without a shepherd. Now let's consider that expression a bit more carefully. Because God calls his people sheep in the Bible quite often. And when he does that, it's simply an accurate description of who we are. It's not meant as a compliment. He didn't say that we were as wise as owls or as resourceful as coyotes or raccoons or okay, hyenas in the Middle Eastern context. He says that his people are like sheep. If he wanted to build up the self-esteem of his people, if he wanted to make them feel good about themselves and of themselves, calling them sheep was not the way to do it. Calling them sheep. Calling us sheep. That's meant to give an accurate picture of us. A picture that makes us humble before God. Because you see, sheep are some of the most utterly dependent animals on the planet. They're also some of the most stupid. Sheep need a shepherd for survival. Sheep need a shepherd to show them where to go for food and to, and to bring them to the food. Sheep need a shepherd to protect them against the predators. When sheep don't have a shepherd, they're prone to wander, to fall prey to wolves and bears and lions. When sheep don't have a shepherd, they're liable to starve. Sheep that want to be independent and do things their own way? They die. That's why Jesus has compassion on them. He knows what they really need. He knows that these sheep are out in the wilderness, wandering, wandering, wandering. These sheep are starving. These sheep are His. And the shepherds who were supposed to take care of them, they took care of themselves instead. The religious leaders in Israel, the priests and the scribes, they were false shepherds who just lined their own pockets and they let the people, they let the sheep wander. These people were victims of false shepherds who gave them stones, scorpions and serpents for food. No wonder then that Jesus had compassion on these people, that he felt sorrow, that he felt pity, that he was broken hearted for them. They had been cheated and they had been robbed by these false shepherds. Now notice how his compassion translates into action. He knows what they really need. These sheep without a shepherd have been starving for spiritual food. That's why it says at the end of verse 34, so he began teaching them many things. He gives them the gospel of the kingdom of God, proclaiming to, to them the good news, as he's done so often already in Mark. He gives them spiritual truth that will truly feed their hungry and thirsty souls. Here's the good shepherd with his sheep in the wilderness. And He feeds them, giving them the nourishment that they have been lacking for so long. And so He continues to do today. Today, His sheep are still in the wilderness on a journey to the promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem. Some might ask with Psalm 78, we sang Psalm 78, but we didn't sing these words Psalm 78 has a question in it. Can God spread a table in the desert? Yes, He can. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. Week in and week out. He spreads a table in the desert. And He feeds us with His Word. In the desert, every direction looks the same. It can be disorienting to be in the desert so much uncertainty and confusion. But the Good Shepherd comes and He feeds us and He gives us direction. He shows us the way of life, the, the way forward from the desert to the promised land. But now I can hear someone saying, but what about His concern for the disciples? What happened to their need for rest? and his attempt to meet that need? That's a good question, isn't it? And you can look at it from a couple of different angles. From one perspective, the disciples were sheep with a shepherd. They were disciples of Jesus. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? The good shepherd tends to the needs of the one lost sheep leaving the others behind. He tends to the needs of the one lost sheep. Wouldn't he then also tend to the needs of the 5,000-plus lost sheep and leave the 12 who are in good hands already? From another perspective, what the crowds needed as lost sheep was also what the disciples needed, what they needed most. More than rest, they needed the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Loved ones, remember this simple basic truth. Believers never outgrow their need for the gospel. And the disciples also needed to see their good shepherd and his compassion so that in their ministry in due time they would go and do likewise. And his compassion for the sheep without a shepherd doesn't stop with his teaching them. He's a good shepherd who takes care of all the needs of his sheep. And this gets drawn out when his disciples approach him late in the day. They again draw attention to the fact that this is a remote place. Again, literally a wilderness. Out in the boonies. And it's late. And all these people are here and they're preventing us from having our retreat. So Jesus, please send them away to places where they can eat. Send them away from us now. So we can have a break. And he answers in a sort of teasing way. You give them something to eat. You disciples. Again, notice how he doesn't see the crowds as a nuisance, but as his calling. He came to be their shepherd. How can he send them away? And their reply to him is incredulous, the disciples' reply. Their their reply is almost sarcastic. They ask, shall we go and buy 200 denarii or 8 months of wages, as we have it in our translation? Shall we go and buy bread for them with 200 denarii or 8 months of wages? And that's not a serious question. It comes across as snarky and sarcastic. After all, it's not likely that they had eight months of wages on them in the first place. In the second place, eight months of wages would get you over 2,000 loaves of bread. Where are you going to find someone who has 2,000 loaves of bread for sale? And how are you going to get 2,000 loaves of bread from there to here? Now, this is a sarcastic question. But his next question is not sarcastic. He asks how many loaves are on hand and tells them to go and find out. And after a bit of searching, they discover that in the whole crowd, there's only five loaves of bread and two fish. And from John's gospel, we know that this food belonged to a young boy. It's not much. Jesus directs them to sit down in groups on the grass, green grass. And that little detail tells us that this event took place in the spring doesn't change the fact that this place is out in the boonies. Even in the driest and wildest parts of Palestine, you can often find green grass in the spring, even if only for a little while. The people were seated in groups of hundreds and fifties, seated in an orderly fashion. And these two details, about the green grass and about the people being seated, all this is reminiscent of Israel in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus. Because the exodus out of Egypt took place in the spring. And if you read Numbers 2, you'll find that the Israelites were carefully and methodically arranged in their camps in the wilderness. And so here too in Mark 6. And then Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish and he does something very familiar. He leads in prayer before he and everyone else eats. You see, that practice of praying before you eat, which so many of us do, that's not something that people came up with. Not something that people invented. It's something we find in God's Word. We find it in Scripture. If Jesus, the Son of God, would give thanks for His food and the food of those eating with Him, why wouldn't also those who believe in Jesus, those who have union with Him through faith, And through the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the food that we have before us each and every day is nothing to take for granted. It comes from above as a gracious gift of God. And we ought to give thanks for it. Just as our Savior did. Verse 41 says that He took the loaves and the fish, He gave thanks, He broke the loaves, and then gave them to His disciples. Now, if you take your Bibles with me for a second, and look at Mark 14, verse 22. Something very interesting. So, Mark 14, verse 22. Look at this. While they were eating, this is the Lord's Supper, right? The institution of the Lord's Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. The exact same verbs are used as in Mark 6 verse 41. He took, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not a coincidence. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as as we did this morning, this is also the Good Shepherd feeding His people with His crucified body and shed blood. At the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus reminded us this morning that He is the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. This joyful event here in Mark 6, the feeding of the 5,000, is pointing ahead to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be instituted later. But then also beyond it, to the great marriage feast of the Lamb, when our Savior will feed us for eternity. He will feed us at a lavish banquet for which there there is no earthly comparison. At this feast in Mark 6, Jesus miraculously provides the food, the contribution to the feast, and He does it in, in great abundance. Now, we don't know how he did it, the mechanics of it. And you know what? It doesn't really matter either. What matters is verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. And again, we have shades of Israel in the wilderness with the manna provided by God. There, God's people ate and they had exactly enough. Jesus is reenacting that event. But notice how he goes one step further. He outdoes what we read about Israel in the wilderness. He goes one step further because there's more than enough. There are 12 baskets full of of leftovers. There are even more leftovers than the original amount of food. Now, this is a sign of abounding grace of a Savior who lavishes His people with everything they need and more. And the number of people fed, Mark tells us that there were 5,000 men. 5,000 males. Not 5,000 human beings. 5,000 men. And we could expect that there would also be, in addition to that, women and children. Although the exact amount, we don't know. And so this was a miracle. The feeding of thousands of people with a few loaves and a couple of fish. What does it reveal to us about Jesus Christ? Well, we discover in this text that he's the true shepherd of God's people. The good shepherd who takes care not only of our spiritual needs, but also our physical needs. He's a savior for the whole person, body and soul. What happens here is prophetic of His saving work and all its glorious fullness. Yes, he, he saves our souls with the sacrifice of His body and blood once offered on the cross. But Scripture also tells us that He saves our bodies. These bodies, these flesh and blood bodies that are, are sitting here in this church building this afternoon. At the last day, these bodies will be raised from the dead glorified. They will be reunited with our souls, made to be like His glorious body. Body and soul, the whole human being, rest under the curse of sin. And Jesus Christ delivers from the curse of sin on the entire person, both body and soul. Loved ones, He's a complete Savior. He's your Savior. Your good shepherd. He'll never disappoint. He'll never fail you. He'll never forsake you. He promises. And you may have times in your pilgrimage here on earth when it seems like the world is spinning out of control. And you're disoriented. And you're unable to find your bearings. It happens. At times like that, and really, at all times, let your hearts and your thoughts flee to Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. He promises to lead you, to guide you like none other can. When it seems like the foundations are shaken, He'll encourage you with the knowledge that there is solid ground under your feet. You can confidently and you can joyfully say with the psalmist, as we're going to sing in a moment, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus, our good shepherd, we praise you for your gracious provision for your people in times past, present, and future. Thank you for providing for our entire person through your perfect redeeming work. We are grateful to know that you are the only Savior we need for body and soul. As our shepherd, we pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us in green pastures. We pray that you would defend us against all enemies. We ask that you would lead us to see more and more our dependence on you. That we would love you more, be impressed with you more, have our hearts filled with more thankfulness. We pray all of this in your name and for your glory, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.